Now, the average individual listening to us right now may say, well, I don't eat soybean oil. Yes, you do. Um, if, if you're eating the bulk of your calories from foods that come from bags and boxes with barcodes, it is exceedingly <laughs> likely that you're like the average American where you're getting most of your fats from these refined seed oils. Most The average American gets more of their fat calories from soybean oil and shortening than literally any other fat in their diet. And, and these are rich with these, these omega-6 fats. And among the many, many things omega-6 fats do, they can drive insulin resistance at the level of the fat cells first, and then other tissues start to follow. Hi, I'm Dr. Morgan Nolte, physical therapist turned weight loss coach. I used to struggle with emotional eating, consistency, and confidence. Then I made my health a priority and learned how to lose the mental and physical weight once and for all. I changed my mindset and lifestyle to lose weight with small, sustainable changes. Each week on the Reshape Your Health podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies to help you do the same. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Before we dive into this amazing interview, I wanted to let you know about my brand new weight loss plateau quiz. It's only been out for a couple weeks and already almost 500 people have taken this quiz and they've learned which type of weight loss plateau they're facing so that they can get clarity and confidence around a strategy to break through it. It is so valuable, and on the other side of this quiz in May, I'm going to have free trainings to help you break through your type of weight loss plateau. Stay tuned for more information, but in the meantime, I want you to go take that quiz. Join almost 500 people who have done so already. Just go to weightlossforhealth.com forward slash quiz. That's weightlossforhealth.com forward slash quiz. It's absolutely free. It only takes a minute of your time. And I promise it's going to save you a lot of time, confusion, and overwhelm down the road. If you have high blood sugar, high blood pressure, or excess weight, this episode is for you. Eight to nine out of 10 people tuning in have insulin resistance. And for such a common condition, I'm always shocked that so few people even know it exists. Insulin resistance is at ground zero for weight gain, diabetes, heart disease, and so much more. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Benjamin Bickman, who is the author of Why We Get Sick. Consider him the expert of the experts on insulin resistance. It's a big deal that he's here with us today. Dr. Bickman has his PhD in bioenergetics and as a professor at BYU, he's the director of its diabetes research lab. He studies insulin, including its role as a regulator of human metabolism and its role in chronic disease. In addition to his research and teaching, Dr. Bickman actively serves as a research mentor to undergraduate and graduate students. He and his students frequently publish their findings in national publications, and he lives with his wife and three kids in Utah. I have to be honest with you. Chronic dieting will not work for sustainable weight loss. The only way to lose weight, keep it off, and prevent disease, which, hello, that's what I'm all about, is to live a low-insulin lifestyle. I know that might sound strange to you, but it's true. When how will this affect my insulin becomes your new litmus test instead of how many points or calories does this have, weight loss clicks into gear. It becomes so much easier. I know for most people, it's a paradigm shift. You've been fed, pun intended, bad nutritional advice. Then that advice has been reinforced by government recommendations and billions of dollars in marketing by big food companies. This misinformation is not your fault, but your health is your responsibility. And when you accept full responsibility for your health, you can expect to get results. That's why I'm so proud you're here with me today. This is a huge win because you're about to learn life-changing information. So give yourself a little round of applause for being here, for showing up, and for learning. I'm honored that you're spending your time with me today. 
Knowledge is power, and Dr. Brickman is about to impart decades of wisdom in one short interview. You're going to learn what insulin is, what causes insulin resistance, how to know you have it, and how to reverse it. We also touch on major diet myths and mistakes that everyone deserves to know. I know that you're going to walk away with simple, actionable steps to start lowering your insulin. And when you do, the weight will come off, your blood pressure will go down, and your blood work will improve. I know because that's exactly what I teach in my program, Weight Loss for Health, and I hear stories like this all the time from my members. I know that these kinds of results are possible for you. With the right information and the right strategy, I am confident that you can reach your weight loss and wellness goals. Let's go ahead and dive into this interview. Dr. Bickman, thank you so much for joining us today on the reshape your health podcast. We are so blessed by your presence. And I know this is going to be a great interview. My pleasure. Want- Please call me Ben. This will be great. Oh, good. I want to start with, um, your personal story. I think that I've done a lot of research into you, but I think listeners, um, haven't, you know, you might be new to them. So can you tell us about your personal story with health and weight loss and wellness? Um, and mm-hmm. just what drove you to do so much research on the field of insulin resistance? Yes, it was something I never would have imagined, um, studying as a young undergraduate, I didn't even know what insulin resistance was, which isn't surprising. A lot of people don't even now my evolution in a, uh, to, to become the scientist that I am now did start from a long held interest in the body. I was just raised in a a generally healthy home. Uh, My dad, especially who largely raised us alone after my my mom passed away when we were quite young, he was just always um, focused on making sure we got our vitamins and that we had a good hearty breakfast. It was never cold cereal. Um, So generally just raised in a home that prized uh, health. And, and that interest, um, just sort of grew when I became, when I was an undergraduate, uh, I just wondered what am I, what do I really want to spend the rest of my life doing? And I was in a class as an undergraduate and I was taking a, a class, a physiology class from a professor who was an actual scientist as well. He had an NIH funded lab here at the university where I'm, I'm back now at BYU. And I was just amazed that there were still scientists studying the body. It's, it, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I, as a 21 year old at the time, um, I started a little late after high school, I served a, a two year mission for my church. So I was a little late starting my undergraduate in the first place, but I was amazed that there were still scientists studying the body. I just assumed we're done. We know everything. There is no more science. There's no more questions to ask. Uh, but that, that, planted such a seed of interest in my mind. And I, I really appreciated the work-life balance that he seemed to have, that this was a guy who had freedom of his schedule and freedom of thinking, which of course is something that is so precious in academia and may it always be that way. Yeah. Uh, and and it's uh, that planted the seed. And then I, I uh, st- stuck here at, at BYU as a, uh, to get my master's degree in exercise physiology, in part because I knew I wanted to continue in academia, but I didn't know what to do yet. And I was close enough to finishing my undergraduate that I just sort of needed an immediate step. And so getting a master's degree, I'm, I'm not too proud to admit, uh, that was really just a, a way to h- hold off a bit more before I committed to a PhD, because I just didn't know enough yet but it was at towards the end of my PhD, sorry, towards the end of my master's degree, which was an exercise physiology. So it had me studying the muscle and cardiovascular fitness. That was the focus of my thesis. But I stumbled across a paper that had been published a few years prior to that. So this to me was in the early 2000s. The paper had been published in the late 90s, which detailed how fat cells produce and release pro-inflammatory uh, proteins or, or hormones. And that was such a fascinating discovery in my young mind at the time, because it showed to me that fat cells are far more involved in the body than just storing fat, and that they may be the connection between obesity and diabetes. And that was something I'd, I've been hearing a lot about, this confluence of these twin epidemics, 
Um, diabesity had been coined kind of the, a term in the early 2000s. So a lot of people were talking about it. And the idea that the fat cell could be releasing these pro-inflammatory proteins, and that then is what's driving the type two diabetes, it, it blew my mind. And of course, what was inserted in that, in that paradigm, the fat cell is producing more inflammatory proteins, that then um, would result in something called insulin resistance. And that was the foundation of the type two diabetes. So that was the beginning of my interest in insulin resistance. And it represented a total shift that I've never really turned back from, which was my interest pivoted away from muscle cells. Um, not that we haven't studied muscle cells in my lab, we have um, as my, with my own lab, but I am much more interested in fat cells now. And that was the subject of my dissertation and my PhD and the focus during my postdoctoral studies. Uh, and now with my own lab these past 10 years, it has been to continue to dive into insulin resistance. And then one last comment on that, because I'd be remiss not to, to, to state it, it. Once I received my teaching assignment as a professor, uh, and I was given the assignment to teach a class called pathophysiology. That's the sick body. That's when the body's systems aren't working well. I was just amazed at how frequently insulin resistance was relevant to one of these pathophysiological conditions where I'd be teaching the students a lecture about fatty liver or liver disorders and fatty liver disorders, fatty liver is the most common liver disorder. And wouldn't you know it, insulin resistance is the most, is the implicated most common cause. And the same thing would go with Alzheimer's disease and heart disease and infertility and hypertension, all of these chronic diseases that we're afraid of insulin resistance to some degree was causing this problem. And that was very um, wonderful for me as a professor, because it let me bring up a topic that I'm an expert in from time to time, but it also changed the way I looked at the research that I was doing. I saw a value in what we were studying that I didn't quite see before. I, I saw a scope that I, had, I couldn't ever imagine. I, I thought that me studying insulin resistance was only relevant to type two diabetes. Mm -hmm. And then it was this wonderful realization that actually it's relevant to virtually every chronic disease or what I like to refer to as the plagues of prosperity. And, and so that's my long-winded answer, how I got to being a naive but interested undergraduate to being totally committed professionally to understanding what is the most common disorder and one of the least known. Absolutely. And, the, and it, you wrote an amazing book. I always say it's the book that I wish I could write, meaning I wish I had uh, the expertise and, and writing skills and, and everything that goes into writing a book. Um, why we get sick. It's an amazing book. I highly encourage every single person who hears or watches this interview to go read it. Um, I read it pretending that you were on a pedestal, especially for the first half when you're like <laughs> insulin resistance does this and it does this and it affects diabetes yeah, and heart disease. The and dementia. Yeah. That's right. I, that's kind of how I read the book. I loved it. I soaked it in. I shared it with my members of weight loss for health. And I really want to know what drove you to take on that huge undertaking, which it was, this is a very yeah. dense topic and you made it very understandable. You know what, uh, Morgan, I thank you. That's all very nice of you to say. I, let me dispel some of the myth. It was easier than I thought. Um, and it's not because someone would say, oh, well, it's just because Ben, you're such a gifted writer and I'm a, I'm a decent writer, but, but I had just, I had been kind of synthesizing this idea for so long that once the time came for me to actually spit it out on the paper, yeah. it just gushed out. Um, but nevertheless, it, I, uh, my university here every summer, they do something called education week. And in, it's basically one week where the campus, there's no students. It's kind of in this break at the end of fall semester and before, sorry, at the end of summer semester and before so, uh, fall semester has started. So the campus is empty for a couple of weeks. And so the university kind of took advantage of that time to create this education week. And this is something for just anyone, uh, no, not, not students, <clears throat> anyone from the community can come sign up <clears throat> for a series of classes on all kinds of topics all kinds of topics. And this would be taught by professors generally teaching their areas of expertise, but of course, very much to the, to the level of the, the public audience. And I had thought this was probably about five years ago 
I thought this, what a fun challenge this would be for me to take everything that I kind of sprinkle over an entire semester, four hours a week, a four credit class, and then condense it to, to one week, you know, five hours, one hour a day. What a fun challenge that would be. And so one spring I, I, I submitted this application or this idea and the university loved it. And they said, yep, do it, please. You got the green light submit, uh, send us to your, your kind of teaching plan. And so I, I did it. And at the end of this week, um, it, it was absolutely mind blowing to me. They, they had me in a pretty good sized room. And I think the room could fit about 200. By the end of the week, they had moved me into a room that could fit 500. And there was standing room only by the time I got to that Friday class. I was just amazed that people would be as interested in this as I was. And at the end of this week, dozens of people came up and just asked, where can I get your book? And I thought, mm. I really ought to write a book. And mm. that was the moment that that class ended that first year, uh, five years ago, I immediately started writing the book. Um, but oh my heavens though, Morgan, it, you let me, let me now explain what is difficult. Um, I, I'd written the book in about eight months from beginning to end. I wrote the whole book and I was so naive. I thought that just like when I, when I published some of my scientific manuscripts, I thought I could put together a manuscript and then submit it to, you know, when we publish a manuscript in the science realm, we, we write a manuscript, we submit it to a journal, the journal gets reviewers and they review it and they tell you whether it's acceptable or not, or whether you need to make some edits. I just thought it'd be the same thing with a book. I just need to contact a publisher, say, Hey, I've written a book. Do you want to publish my book? No, you have to get an agent. And it took me eight to 10 months to find an agent and then even after I had my agent working with her, it took us another almost year to find a publisher who wanted to publish the book. It was such a hassle. So writing the book was a piece of cake. It was mm -hmm. actually trying to get the whole process of getting the book published. And, and during this time, I was tempted, I confess, to just self-publish because you can do that oh, these sure. days. But I am so glad I didn't. Anyone who's tempted to do that, um, I'm so glad I didn't because working with the publisher made this book so much better. Just having an outside set of eyes um, tell me what was good, what was not, what needed to be expanded, what might not be the best fit for the book at the time. It became such a superior product. Nevertheless, I've gone a little off topic. The book was born from, from my seeing how interested people were in this topic and how generally unfamiliar they were with it. And, and I, I just needed to get this on paper and kind of leave my mark that if there was one thing I would want someone to know um, that represented the sum of everything I know and what I care about, it is that we don't know the public, the average person does not know enough about this thing called insulin resistance, and that is making them fat and sick. Well, and then in, in the introduction for your book, which was written by Dr. Jason Fung, and I talk about his work a lot, the obesity code, the diabetes code, the cancer code, I was I thought, how did he get Dr. Fung to write an intro for his book? But that's probably another conversation. Anyways, yeah. he said up to 85% of American adults have insulin resistance and most of them have never even heard of it. And I'll be honest throughout my physical therapy education and even my geriatric residency, I don't think I ever heard the term insulin resistance. It wasn't until after that when I had seen so many people suffer from amputations and neuropathy and cognitive impairment from diabetes, I thought, how can we prevent this? And that mm -hmm. got me down the research rabbit hole landed on insulin resistance. And like you, I thought, how do we not know this? How is this not mainstream knowledge? And it kind of became my mission then to help people learn how, what it is, how to lower it so that they can lose weight, keep it off and prevent disease. How on earth are we here? where 85% of adults have it and yeah. don't know it. How yeah, are we yeah. here? What a, yeah, what a wonderful question. It is, it is an, a very, very sobering statistic. And lest anyone think this is a particularly American problem, that is far, far from the truth. I have done, I did my postdoctoral work in, in Southeast Asia, in Singapore. There is massive um, insulin resistance statistics in Southeast Asia. I have given talks in the Middle East and there is an incredible burden of insulin resistance in the Middle East, even worse um, per capita than we have here in the US. Mexico is as bad or worse than the US is. So this is not a problem that is unique to the United States. This is a global problem. And how we got here in part 
is because we did what we were told. And that seems a little <clears throat> um, maybe mean to say, but I, I, I think the, the dogmatic view of nutrition has in part led us to where we are, where we have been told with the best of intentions, perhaps, that we need to avoid fat and we need to focus on carbohydrates. And now more and more these days, we need to avoid animal proteins, which I know is something that we'll get to later and it's something you're passionate about. We basically started eating a diet that was protein deficient and in our efforts to, be, to avoid, well, in our efforts to avoid fat, it became protein deficient. Now protein has been vilified for other reasons nowadays. Um, but it led to us eating more and more fake foods because real food has fat in it and, of course, protein. And so our avoiding, we were told to eat a high-carbohydrate diet and avoid natural fats, which is what saturated fats are, and to eat several little meals per day. Basically, we were given a prescription when it came to our diet that would result in the average individual having elevated insulin levels every waking moment of the day. Because we wake up in the morning, we've been told that we ought to eat this big hearty whole grain cereal or bagels or bread or whatever, and orange juice, our insulin and our glucose is going to spike dramatically. The insulin is going to stay elevated for perhaps um, in the average person, it could stay elevated for two to three hours easily, easily uh, above average, above what it was before the meal. And then right around then they'll think, well, now it's time for my mid-morning snack. And so they bump it up again. And so every time throughout the day before insulin ever has a chance to come back down to normal, we've bumped it back up. Yeah. And that is one of the key drivers of insulin resistance. There are other inputs involved, no doubt. But one of the key causes of insulin resistance is chronically elevated insulin. In fact, you cannot have the insulin resistance without the chronically elevated insulin. They must be viewed together hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Yeah, I'd really like to, before we dig too deep into it, I think that we need to take a step back and realize most people listening and watching have no clue what insulin resistance is. Can you please start from mm -hmm. the starting line and explain what insulin resistance is and what are the signs of insulin resistance? Yeah, yeah. Ex excellent. I'm very glad to start there. So insulin resistance is a coin and it has two sides. On one side of the coin, it is that insulin isn't working as well at some cells, at some tissues in the body as it used to. Now, that is very, very important for me. Um, to make clear, because you have to understand that some of the body's cells are responding to insulin as well as they ever have. And that becomes very relevant when we talk about the other side of the coin in a moment. But some of the cells, like muscle cells, for example, aren't responding in fat cells, um, which constitute a fairly significant part of who we are, our muscle cells, especially in our fat cells, depending on how, how fat we are. So these cells aren't responding to insulin as well as they were before. So insulin isn't working as well as it was before at all cells of the body. That's one part. That's the insulin resistant part. Some cells are resistant to insulin. The other side of the coin is the one I just mentioned, which is chronically elevated insulin or a condition called hyperinsulinemia. And again, that matters because some cells have a perfect responsiveness to insulin. They're still totally insulin sensitive. Now, however, this chronically elevated insulin level is overstimulating these cells. It's making these insulin sensitive cells do too much. And we have to appreciate both sides of this coin that we call insulin resistance in order to understand how insulin resistance is so involved in the origins of so many chronic diseases. Because while it may be the insulin resistance part that is making someone's blood sugar levels rise and becoming more and more diabetic, it's the hyperinsulinemia part that is making someone have hypertension and making the woman have polycystic ovary syndrome. So there are different pathologies mm -hmm. or different disorders that are going to be a result of one or the other or both. Side of the insulin resistance coin. Right. That's right. Okay. And then for those who aren't familiar, can you just explain what insulin is and what it does? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. I should have even, so one step okay. even further back, I yeah. should have started there. Yeah. So insulin is the hormone from the pancreas that we all have flowing through our blood. Unless we are a type one diabetic, then you have to inject the insulin because you have to have insulin. Insulin is a hormone of life. 
You must have it. Um, you cannot survive without it. So insulin is, uh, does all kinds of things. Literally every cell in the body will respond to insulin literally. And I know the kids these days use that term, not literally. I do mean it literally. <laughs> um, every single cell in the body has insulin receptors. So every cell will respond to insulin. And because every cell does different things, insulin tells different cells to do different yeah. things. The most common, um, uh, effective insulin or how it's most commonly viewed is, be, is by, uh, through the lens of what it does to glucose. So when someone eats a starchy, sugary meal, of course, blood glucose levels will spike. That is unhealthy. In fact, even lethal if it stays high for too long. Insulin comes in to save the day where in the pancreas will sense this elevated glucose. It will um, release insulin and start making more insulin. And that will open the doors to allow the glucose to move from the blood into some of the body's cells like muscle and fat cells, for example. And that would then lower the glucose levels and insulin having done that particular job will also come down. But again, insulin does something to every cell, even those cells where insulin isn't necessarily stimulating glucose uptake, it's still telling the cell to do something. And so if I had to define insulin in a whole body term um, or a thematic effective insulin, I would say insulin tells the cells of the body, every single cell of the body, what to do with energy. So it, it tells the cells whether to, uh, to grow or to shrink. It tells them what to do with the nutrients that they have. And the theme of it all is to store energy. Insulin wants the body to store energy. It abhors wasting energy. It wants to dampen metabolic rate. It wants to prevent any breakdown of fat, for example. It just wants the body to store stuff. Okay. I think that's a really good starting point and building on that, you know, with both of us really passionate about preventing chronic disease, getting the word out there, let's talk about heart disease. February, we, we had it a couple months ago. It's national heart month. I had some posts about how to prevent heart disease. And, and one of them was an interview with Dr. Nadir Ali. And he talked mm. about why LDL goes up on a low carb lifestyle. And I really like how you explained this in the book for people who are concerned about heart disease. Sometimes their doctor might recommend to lower their LDL and they, they blink, they put a blanket statement on it that it's bad. And I thought you did a good job explaining LDL and how we can determine, um, you know, a, a better way to determine your risk of heart disease in the book. So can you elaborate on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say any, um, definitely if anything I say is incongruent with what Nadir Ali says, defer to him. <laughs> He's, he is the expert and I'm not a lipidologist, but the, the little bit that I do know is this, that LDL is not the villain that we believe we've believed it to be. Um, and that very much plays into us erroneously vilifying saturated fats. Yeah. The whole reason we're afraid of saturated fats is because it can impact, it can increase LDL in some people. But when I talk to someone who has a high LDL and, and they're very worried because in part their physician has made them worried, they've told them they need to be worried. I will very quickly ask, did you get a pattern or an LDL diameter test to know whether you had pattern A or pattern B? And basically, and if you guys already, if you already had Nadir on, then, then this has been stated before. So I'll do a brief version of it. But if LDL matters at all, and that is a big if, um, there is no causal evidence in humans to confirm that it does. There's just correlational evidence. But let's say LDL does contribute to plaque formation in blood vessels. What seems clear is that the type of LDL matters or the size of the LDL matters. And we define that based on the, the, the diameter and we put it into a spectrum or a pattern. Are you pattern A, which means your LDL lipoproteins are big and, and like fluffier? Or is it pattern B, which is when the LDL is actually tighter and more dense? The, the pattern B is more associated with atherosclerosis, whereas pattern A appears not to be. And again, this is all correlational, but the idea is perhaps that the more dense and tightly packed the lipoprotein is, the more likely it is to bump into blood vessels and then potentially even invade those blood vessel walls. And thus perhaps making it more prone to develop an atherosclerotic plaque. And again, that's all the theory, that's all the theory of it. Um, however, 
this so so that's one one nuance that I think someone could take away from LDL, which would be well, what is your pattern? If you have a higher LDL, but it's this pattern A or the bigger, fluffier kind, then it appears that you have very little to worry about, if if anything. Um, I, uh, what's interesting about LDL is just how often we fail to appreciate its healthy aspects, yeah. where uh, we need. Um, and I'll come back a little more to, to uh, atherosclerosis and blood lipids, but LDL is absolutely fundamental to human immunity. And this could be why, um, why that individuals with the lowest LDL levels are significantly more likely to die, and especially from infections and blood-based cancers. Their risk of dying from infections and, and like leukemia cancers, I think it's 15 times higher if someone has very low LDL than if they have high LDL. So when I'm talking to someone who has high LDL, I often will say, congratulations, you're probably going to live longer because there are studies, the, the Shanghai, um, uh, what was that study? There's the Baltimore longitudinal study, the Honolulu heart study, the Shanghai aging study or something like that. <clears throat> One of the themes of these very different areas of research is that the people with the highest cholesterol, including LDL, tend to live longer. So I say, if you have high LDL, then look at your other lipids, particularly your triglyceride to HDL ratio, uh, because that is a much better predictor of heart disease. If you have lower, relatively lower triglycerides and relatively higher HDL cholesterol. And that results in a triglyceride to HDL ratio that's somewhere below 1.5. Then I would say that is when I especially say, congratulations, you're probably going to live longer than average. But then to sum it all up, I just strongly encourage people to, to pay the 60 or 65 bucks, depending on where they live, go to a radiology clinic and get a coronary artery calcium scan, yep. a CAC scan, because that's something that can actually tell you the degree to which you have plaque in your heart vessels. And this is what all these blood lipids, LDL, triglycerides, HDL, they're only surrogates of what the CAC scan can actually tell you. So if someone has high LDL, but they have a zero CAC score, then they have nothing to worry about. Yeah. That's what Dr. Ali really said was the gold standard as well. So I'm, I'm happy to hear you confirm that. I want to talk about people listening to this between eight and nine out of 10 of people listening or watching have insulin resistance. They probably have never received a fasting insulin test. Like they have maybe fasting glucose test. I want to talk about how does somebody know if they are insulin resistance, insulin resistant, let's start with the blood test. Um, and then go on to some signs and symptoms that they can use if they don't want to get their blood tested. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you'd mentioned signs earlier and I failed to get around to it. So this is good. Timing. That's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if someone can get their blood tests, I would say there's two nice things you could do. Well, one, actually three, one is the triglyceride to HDL ratio that I just mentioned. If that ratio is below 1.5, that is a very good sign that you're insulin sensitive. If it's above 1.5, that's a good sign that you're insulin resistant. Two, a fasting insulin. If you can get a fasting insulin measurement and it's at six microunits per mil or less, now that is the gospel according to Ben. There is yeah. no, unfortunately, we have so chronically overlooked insulin as a clinical value that there are no clear cutoffs. Um, and I would say I wouldn't trust them anyway because the average American is insulin resistant and they're going to have higher than normal levels of insulin anyway. So my views, and I base this on evidence, is that six microunits is a good cutoff. If you have a fasting insulin that is six or less, that's a very good sign that you're doing great. Um, it, maybe I could even almost be a little more liberal and say that if it's under 10, that's good just to kind of make a nice clean cutoff. If, it's, if your insulin is up into the teens, um, that is a, that's a warning sign. Um, if it's, you know, say below 15, between 10 to 15, if it's above 15-ish, I would say that's a bad sign and you probably are insulin resistant. I, I allow that academically, I allow that kind of wiggle room in the low teens, just because like every hormone, insulin has an ebb and a flow. And it's very possible that someone goes in and gets their in fasting insulin measured, but they happen to catch it at a peak, at a flow rather than an ebb. And all the more reason then to look at the triglyceride to HDL ratio. So I'm always quick to bring that one up after 
the fasting insulin, because while the fasting insulin can change, and that is a problem, the triglyceride to HDL ratio isn't going to go in that same kind of dynamic pattern as quickly. And then lastly, and this would be considered a gold standard if anything is, um, uh, that's available to the individual. If someone can do an oral glucose tolerance test and then get their insulin measured at every 30 minutes, that might be a bit extreme. So I'll do a simpler version of it. But if someone can do zero minutes, 30, 60, 90, 120, and at the simplest um, way of interpreting this, if they have a peak at 30 minutes and then every subsequent time point is lower than the 30 minute time point, that's a very, very good sign. And then lastly, with that same kind of challenged pattern of insulin or an oral glucose tolerance test, you want to make sure that at that two hour time point, if your insulin is below 30, that's a good sign um, that you're insulin sensitive. If at two hours, your insulin is above 30. So even if someone just measured insulin at time point zero and time point at two hours and didn't wasn't able to do all those intermediate time points, to get the whole pattern. If your insulin started, you know, at a good number ish, you know, say below 10 to make it a little generous and it was below 30 at, at two hours, that's, that's a good sign. And you said a glucose tolerance test. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, right. So that is something that a lot of people can get done at a clinic where you go in and you just drink a little solution of pure glucose, 75 grams. And, and then you sort of feel a little sick and you, you know, you go in and get your blood drawn. So any gal who's most gals who've been pregnant have had this done. Yeah. As I part refused of it. Yeah. I yeah, have yeah. a, well, my wife failed it. Oh, I, I failed it with my, with my son, Dawson. I'm not yeah. surprised. Um, the part, part of my problem with this, and I teach this to my students who are all future nurses and doctors. I say, you can't assume um, that if someone fails that it could be a false positive, so to speak, where we have standardized this. We have every single woman drink the exact same amount of glucose. And if you have a petite, thin gal, like say my wife is, and compare her response to a woman who's six foot two and weighs a hundred more pounds than my wife does, you know, my wife's going to get a false positive because she's so, she's so petite. That's a significant amount of glucose for her little body to metabolize. This other gal who's a big husky woman she can metabolize it much more rapidly. And even though she might actually have a problem, she's just so much bigger that that amount of glucose is nothing to her bigger body. So she may get a false negative. So I, I, don't, I don't think that test is used very wisely, frankly. I think if we're going to use it, we need to have a way of basing it on body weight to some degree. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I, I refused it with my daughter. She'll be one in May. Um, just because I didn't want to put that much sugar in my body. I knew other signs yeah. of, you know, of issues, which we can talk about next. And I thought I am not, I'm not going to have gestational diabetes. Um, I'm not going to expose my body to that. And I, and I really tell people advocate for what you want, you know, doctors give recommendations yeah, you. And, and you can give recommendations too. Um, so can you talk about other signs of insulin resistance besides yep. blood work? Yep. That's great. Yeah. So, so the blood work is of course, um, the most obvious way to um, find this out, but people would be surprised at just how obvious some of the non-blood work um, signs may be in indicating insulin resistance. At its, at its simplest, I think if someone is a little overweight, that's a little subjective, of course, so, but I'll leave it there. If they're a little overweight and they have high blood pressure, I could almost say we're done because it is so unlikely that someone's going to have hypertension and it not be caused by insulin resistance. Or I'll say that another way, insulin resistance is almost always the cause of hypertension. Now people can have, that's why I emphasize the overweight. I know in myself, I will check my blood pressure here in my office. Um, I have a little automatic cuff um, just from time to time. And I noticed that for me, um, it, if I have a bad night of sleep, my blood pressure is absolutely higher, even significantly higher than when I sleep well. And so I have to, you know, qualify this. If someone consistently has high blood pressure, you could say, well, they're just consistently bad sleepers. But if we combine that with the fact that they're overweight, then I would say we've, began, we've gone beyond bad sleep. That is very, very likely confirmation mm -hmm. or or indication that the person has insulin resistance. And then I would add maybe just one more um, with regards to signs and symptoms, and that's the skin, where the skin is incredibly responsive to insulin and thus 
um, can reveal insulin resistance quite well. There are two things. Um, one is skin tags. If someone has skin tags at their armpits or around their neck um, or around their groin or around the backs of their knees, these are any generally any area where their skin is rubbing against it's, itself. If a person has skin tags, that's a very, very strong sign that they have insulin resistance. And then less common than that, skin tags is more common, less common is another situation called acanthosis nigricans. And that's when a person will have like dark spots. Now I'm covered with dark spots called freckles, of course, and that's not <laughs> what I mean. I don't mean these distinct little freckles. I mean like actual kind of sections of skin um, where it's darker and may even feel a little differently, mm -hmm. a little rougher, more velvety than the rest of the skin. That is, that is a very, that's almost absolute confirmation of insulin resistance. If okay. someone has either of those, but especially the acanthosis nigricans, it's, I, would, I would bet everything that's a person who has insulin resistance. Okay. It is so tightly connected with it. And I love that you said somewhere in the book that you know, if you have diabetes, you are insulin resistant. And I think we focus so much on blood sugar. So if someone is pre-diabetes, can we assume has pre-diabetes? Can we also assume that they have insulin resistance? Oh, at 100% right? pre-diabetes okay. is yeah. Pre-diabetes is synonymous with insulin resistance. Yes. So here's something, this is a selfish question and it's mm -hmm. a rabbit hole that I went down. Um, when I read your book and we have companies nowadays that do continuous glucose monitoring, which is fabulous, right? I think that that's very helpful in so many ways, but I'm more interested in insulin. Why, why is that not invented yet? Or is it, oh. and I just don't know about it. Oh, it's not. Uh, oh, believe me, Morgan. Can we this do that is... and be millionaires together? <laughs> oh my goodness. You, you, you would be amazed at how many groups are actively attempting to do this it's because of course the utility goes far beyond insulin. The moment you can create a continuous insulin monitor, you can pick any other hormone. So it is going to, once that dam breaks, it's going to break and it'll be wonderful. And I, I know groups that are actively studying this, including a guy named Tom So at Stanford, uh, at, at, uh, yeah, at Stanford, uh, a genius um, bioengineer, but they're actively working on uh, miniaturizing these kinds of devices that would allow, I mean, imagine the value, of course, insulin, because that's what we're talking about. It would, yeah. once we can do insulin, then you can have a little patch that's telling you not only your insulin levels, but it could be, it could be your cortisol levels, your, your epinephrine or your adrenaline levels, your glucagon levels, the sky, the growth hormone, the sky's the limit at that point, but it is technically fantastically difficult. So my view is that in the next couple years, we will have at home insulin tests, you know, something like, but it won't be exactly like this, but just how someone can make a finger prick and measure their glucose or their ketones with a little meter. It won't look like that. It'll be something different, I, I believe, but there will be some at-home test in the next couple of years for people to measure their insulin levels. And then I would say in 10 more years, then we will get to the point of continuous hormone monitoring, including insulin. So it's technically just fantastically difficult. But that is also why I believe we look at diabetes type one and type two strictly through the lens of glucose in part, because mm -hmm. we have been able to measure glucose for a hundred years. We've only been able to measure insulin for say 40 years and it, or more, more than that now, 50 years. But even then more often than not, even nowadays, it is a radioactive test. So you have to have approval to handle these little, very, very mildly radioactive molecules. Um, but it's, it's not easy to do. You have to have a whole blood sample and you have to take it to a lab and it has, it's an extensive process. So just measuring insulin is still a challenge. And that's partly why I think we look at type one diabetes and type two diabetes as a family of problems because of what they have in common, which is the elevated glucose. But that is such an unfortunate paradigm because if we could have looked at the two from their origins as insulin diseases, then we would see that they're not at all related. They are exact opposites. Type one diabetes is a disease of too little insulin. Type two diabetes is a disease of too much. We shouldn't lump them together. And I think that we only do disservice 
Well, to both groups, frankly, when we do so, we especially type two diabetes, even type one, but type two is just so much more common. We need to look at it through the lens of insulin. And once we do, we can detect it much sooner because yeah. in the average individual who's progressing towards through prediabetes and type two diabetes, we define it on the glucose levels. And so we've been waiting for years and years and years for the glucose to finally start rising. But if we'd been looking at the insulin, Years before the glucose ever moved, the insulin would have moved. And then we could have detected the problem. Absolutely. We're waiting too long. I, I, yep. I heard this analogy once that, well, James, James Clear, I don't know if you've read Atomic Habits. I really like his work. And he has this analogy that bad habits have the reward in the present, right? If you want to smoke, if you want to eat a, a, a donut, you get that instant reward, and the negative impact of the bad habit is delayed until the future. And so we tend to just kind of ignore it or not worry about it or not recognize it. Whereas a good habit, um, you know, the penalty, so to speak, is in the present. We skip, we skip the donut after church, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, we might feel restricted mm -hmm. then, but the reward is in the future. And I think that is the beauty of the continuous feedback monitoring is to bring that, um, you know, negative or positive impact of a habit yep. to the present so that you cannot ignore what you're doing to your body. And I think that that's a nice thing to pivot into. How does insulin resistance start? What are, what, what are people doing that's causing insulin resistance without even knowing it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I touched on the most, what I believe is the most uh, relevant, which is chronically elevated insulin. And, and that is entirely a matter of what we're eating. So where someone's eating high carbohydrate foods and they're eating every two to three hours, that absolutely is going to be driving insulin resistance. Too much insulin causes insulin resistance. And this has been shown um, in humans this has been shown in laboratory rodents and in individual cells at all three of these biomedical models, I could cause insulin resistance in each of them by just increasing the insulin humans as well. So chronically elevated insulin is a big one. Now there are two more that I think are worth emphasizing because they've also been shown to cause insulin resistance in these same three biomedical models. So I just have to mention them. One is inflammation, inflammation itself, uh, can drive insulin resistance. And this is, I don't emphasize this one at the first because it's harder to really know, well, how can I control my inflammation? It's easy to know how to control your, your insulin because it really is just a matter of control your carbohydrates. Inflammation is a little more subtle, but it is a driver of insulin resistance. And this is most obviously relevant in people with autoimmune diseases. When people have an active phase of their autoimmunity, because autoimmunity also tends to come and go, you can track the insulin resistance with the autoimmunity. When say the rheumatoid arthritis is active, the person is more insulin resistant. When the rheumatoid arthritis has subsided for a time, well, then the insulin resistance does too, and they become more insulin sensitive. So inflammation is another one of these big three. And then the last one of the big threes is stress. The prototypical stress hormones are hormones called cortisol and epinephrine or adrenaline. That's another name for it. Both of those, um, they mediate the stress response in the body. So when someone's feeling stressed, part of what they're feeling is, is the consequences of the elevated uh, epinephrine and cortisol and or cortisol, depending on the time of the stress. Both of those hormones have totally different effects throughout the body, but one of the effects they share is that they both increase glucose levels. And that is why they're called insulin antagonists. So they're trying to increase glucose, insulin's trying to lower glucose, and so it puts them at odds. So if someone's experiencing stress and the stress hormones are up, then it just means the body, insulin has to work a little harder. And so the body's becoming more insulin resistant. So those are the yeah. big three that have been shown to cause insulin resistance in cells, rodents, and humans. But I have to add, um, another one that I think is very relevant, which is the excessive consumption of omega-6 rich um, seed oils yeah. like soybean oil and canola oil. Now, the average individual listening to us right now may say, well, I don't eat soybean oil. Yes, you do. Um, if, if you're eating the bulk of your calories from foods that come from bags and boxes with barcodes, it is exceedingly <laughs> likely that you're like the average American where you're getting 
most of your fats from these refined seed oils. Most, the average American gets more of their fat calories from soybean oil and shortening than literally any other fat in their diet. And, and these are rich with these, these omega-6 fats. And among the many, many things omega-6 fats do, they can drive insulin resistance at the level of the fat cells first, and then other tissues start to follow. Yeah. I think in your book, didn't you say linoleic acid is the uh, most readily oxidized fat and that oxidation then leads to inflammation. And like you just said, inflammation is a root cause of insulin resistance. Is that kind of the, the link between them? Yeah. Yeah. That's so one, they do become in fact, pro-inflammatory molecules, but also they make the fat cells grow through a process called hypertrophy. Yeah. And when each individual fat cell hypertrophies, it becomes insulin resistant. So it basically forces the fat cells into this insulin resistant pathway. Now I read a lot of different books. Was it in your book or where you talked about, um, hypertrophic versus hyper hyperplasia yep. of fat. Yep. Can you Someone explain else might that? Have talked I, about it too. Yeah. No, I think it was from your book. And I thought that was fascinating. We weren't planning on talking about this, but let's go down that rabbit hole really quick. Oh, explain, yeah. explain that difference. It's so yeah, interesting. gladly it's very, very relevant. So when someone, I will sometimes be asked, including in from my own students, where does insulin resistance start? There is no definitive answer to that question. There are theories that it starts in the liver or the muscle or the fat cells. I am firmly in the camp of the fat cells. I firmly believe the fat cells fall first. They're the first domino to fall and that starts to spread the insulin resistance throughout the body. And basically what happens, it's a fascinating um, yeah. series of events. And part of why I love the fat cells so much um, because it's really, it's really a case of the fat cell trying to ensure its own survival that causes the problem. So very briefly, and I will try to be brief because this is a topic <laughs> that I devote an entire graduate level course to. When, when, if you had two people getting fat, they're each gaining 10 pounds per year. They could actually be getting fat through totally different processes. On one hand, we could have a fellow who's getting threat, getting fat through a process called hyperplasia. This is when each individual fat cell grows just modestly, and then it recruits a new fat cell, and then it recruits a new fat cell. So they never, no fat cell ever gets very big. All the fat cells are very modest in size. But what's so interesting is that there's almost a limitless potential to continue to make new and new fat cells. So hyperplasia is like a hotel that the moment it gets full vacancy, it just builds another room. The moment each of the beds is filled, it just adds new rooms to the hotel. So it, no, no individual room is ever too full, but the hotel itself just continues to grow. In contrast, another fellow could be getting fat through hypertrophy. And this is when the number of fat cells is set. And this is most people. Most people get fat through hypertrophy, which is why we have such a problem with insulin resistance. And in this instance, this is when the, the fat cell number is set. So this is like the hotel that cannot create any new rooms, but it just keeps packing people into the rooms. So each individual room is getting more and more stuffed or back to the fat cell. Each individual fat cell is getting fatter and fatter. And then it gets big enough that it reaches a point where it essentially tells insulin because insulin is the signal that's telling the fat cell to grow, or it's the, it's the individual, the hotel employee that keeps shoving new more guests into the each, into, into each individual hotel room. The fat cell reaches a point of maximum dimension it, it, beyond which it cannot grow lest it burst. And then, then really hurt, hurt the body and make the body very, very sick. Uh, so the fat cell basically tells insulin, well, it does two things. One, in order to ensure that it doesn't get any bigger, it stops listening to insulin because insulin is trying to tell this hypertrophic fat cell only store fat, don't let any out. But insulin keeps pushing more fat in and now the fat cell starts to um, break the fat down which is something insulin would normally inhibit. So the fat cell has become insulin resistant and is now leaking fats in order just to ensure that it doesn't explode or, or burst. Second though, and this is equally relevant, as each individual fat cell is getting so big, it's pushing the fat cells themselves further and further away from the blood vessels within the fat tissue. Hmm. So each individual fat cell is getting pushed further and further away from capillaries and thus, each individual fat cell is becoming more and more 
uh, hy uh, hypoxic. It's starting to get deficient in oxygen. And so the fat cell, in order to try to get more oxygen and more blood, it will start secreting pro-inflammatory hormones, some of which can be used to increase new blood vessel growth. So it can start to try to grow new capillaries. So both of these processes, the fat cell becoming insulin resistant and the fat cell becoming um, pro-inflammatory are both in an effort to one, prevent it from bursting and two, to prevent it from becoming or maintaining um, this hypoxic state, which would cause the cell to die if it stayed too hypoxic. So the fat cells trying to survive the hypertrophic fat cell, but in the process it's leaking fat and it's leaking pro-inflammatory proteins. And these two then will result in inflammation or sorry, insulin resistance throughout the rest of the body. The combination of the excessive free fatty acids and the inflammation starts to make the brain insulin resistant, the muscle, the liver, uh, the blood vessels and, and, and so on. So that's, that's really my view. The fat cell falls first with regards to insulin resistance, and then it starts to spread that insulin resistance throughout the body. I am so glad we, we went on that little rabbit hole there. That was yeah. fascinating. I love how you explain things. I want to pivot just a little bit. We have two more questions and the first is about protein. I'm a big protein advocate. I'm a physical therapist. We need to prevent sarcopenia or that natural age related muscle wasting. And whenever I'm going to the gym today is a leg day. And I always say that quote yeah. from your book, you know, never miss yeah. a leg day. We need to talk about the importance of muscle and how we can support healthy muscle with adequate protein intake when it comes to insulin resistance. Yes. Yes. So muscle is the, by mass, the main insulin sensitive tissue in the body. If someone can have more muscle, which is why I'm such an advocate of resistance training, yes. um, because there's just no better way to keep muscle, then it is so much more likely that you're going to stay insulin sensitive because that muscle, there's just so much more of it. It can pull in the glucose, the insulin can come down and then your insulin's down and you're just maintaining insulin sensitivity. So having muscle is a wonderful way having more muscle to stay in or, or become more insulin sensitive. Protein must be consumed at a high enough amount to foster that muscle growth. And, and I know this is something you've spoken to very well in the past. Most people aren't getting enough. And I'm convinced that it's because of a fundamental misunderstanding of, of, uh, of how protein may be contributing to cancer, which I think is absolutely insane. It's, it's, it's an absolute um, asinine and wrong view, but it's also, I think more and more of this growing reluctance to eat animal foods or animal-based products where people think we shouldn't eat animal products, meat or eggs or dairy, which are demonstrably the best proteins for humans. If a person is trying to get their proteins from plants, they will not get enough. Yeah. Not plants without a lot not, of different supplements that have yep other ingredients that maybe yeah, aren't the right. best for our health. Yeah. So we need to make sure we're getting enough protein. It's one of, to me, one of the pivotal um, pillars of smart eating, and that is to prioritize protein, make sure you get enough protein. And I just have to add, make sure you get it with fat, protein and fat mm -hmm. together are more anabolic than protein alone. And I have to state that because I worry that as people maybe do embrace eating more protein, they may be tempted to just eat whey, like pure whey protein shakes, where it's just the pure protein. You will not digest that protein as well. You, um, when you eat protein with fat, you physically digest the protein better. So you're getting more of the protein. And, and this might be a consequence of this, uh, protein and fat are more anabolic. They stimulate muscle growth more than protein alone. That is based on human um, clinical studies. So if you want to maximize the anabolic effect of the protein, then you better make sure you're getting it with fat. And I think that um, that's reflected in nature. The best proteins in nature, meat, dairy, eggs come with fat. And I don't think we should be, we should have, we shouldn't be uh, guilty of hubris thinking we know more than, than God or mother nature or whatever evolution, whatever you want to invoke fat and protein come together. That's how we should eat it. I've never thought about that. It's very, very true. I, I like that you pointed that out. I wanted to talk about, you know, there's a lot of people online talking about keto. Um, mm -hmm. I personally don't advocate for a keto quote unquote diet because I work with people who want a sustainable lifestyle. Mo most people just want more food flexibility. And so I teach them how to live their lifestyle to keep insulin low without the ketogenic diet. 
Um, so can you touch on how protein impacts insulin? Because people in the keto camp, some or ketogenic culture, I should say, um, sometimes recommend lower amounts of protein than one, yeah. than what both of us recommend. Can you touch on that? Yeah. Yeah. So that was one of the more interesting, um, discoveries when I first sort of became a member of the low carb community. And I do mean kind of the, the social media community around low carb. Um, I was surprised at how weird some people were eating and, and they would say as they were literally taking a tablespoon of MCT oil or coconut oil, they would say, well, I, I just can't get too much protein because it'll kick me out of ketosis. Yeah, and I thought, right. what a, what a bizarre view. And so I made it a matter of some focus and I was glad to, because I, I kind of came to two, what I believe are relevant discoveries. One, the degree to which protein changes insulin depends on the carbohydrates and the glucose. If someone's eating protein the way we ought to, which is with fat and not with carbohydrate, because in nature, carbohydrates don't come with protein. It doesn't mm -hmm. work that way. Apples don't come with protein. Peas aren't sources of protein. We've artificially made them out to be, but they don't come with fat and they don't come with protein. Um, so uh, focus on the uh, focus on getting the, the protein in the absence of carbohydrates, because if you stack carbohydrate and protein together, you will in fact amplify considerably the insulin response to that carbohydrate. The protein will add an insulin response to it. When you eat protein with fat, what was a considerable insulin bump in one situation is negligible in the other. So the degree to which protein does spike insulin is context um, dependent. And if someone's eating that protein in the absence of carbohydrates, then I would say, don't worry about it. If there is an insulin bump, it's very, very modest. But also to kind of touch, uh, following up on a point I made a moment ago, more human evidence, there's a misconception where people will think, I just got done my workout, I need to get my protein and I need some carbs to spike my insulin to help my mm -hmm. muscles get big. That doesn't happen. Um, there's a human evidence from Stu Stuart Phillips lab to find that when you have people working out and they have protein with carbohydrate, that does nothing further than just the protein alone. It's not like the protein in the fat, which does stack a little more anabolic growth together. Fat does help the protein be more anabolic, um, but carbohydrate and protein does not. There's no additive anabolic effect. And indeed, to talk about insulin resistance, if someone works out and then eats carbohydrates at the end of their workout, they actually offset the insulin sensitizing benefit of the workout itself. Now, I'm not attempting to say carbs are evil and we should avoid them, not at all. I, I, I do want to be a little more nuanced, which I think you do too. I'm not at all yep. saying carbohydrates are bad, I know. but yep. I am saying there's a lot of misconceptions about them, especially when it comes to muscle growth. So just to dispel that misconception, carbohydrates do not um, add to the anabolic effect of the protein. And if you want to really maximize protein, focus on protein and fat. I, I think that's great advice. I did want to piggyback a little bit in your book. You said that a, a really two good hacks for eating carbohydrates. And when we're talking about carbs, starch, sugar, fiber, we want to eat whole natural forms of carbohydrates, reduce or eliminate refined starches and sugars. That's kind of when we're talking about carbs, mm -hmm. I think we're on the same page there. Mm -hmm. And you said apple cider vinegar, you don't need to go into the science because we're running short on time, but just for the listeners, having one to two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar can help reduce the insulin impact of carbohydrates. And then also eating the carbs at the end of the meal, I thought was yep. a really practical tip, which I've adopted. So, and I tell my son this too, I said, Dawson, you need to eat your protein first, you know, make yes. you stronger. And yes. so well, we I really try to I, do I, that. I feel that. I feel that as well. My, when I look at my children and their eating habits, I, I want them to eat protein because it's these fake foods that are so protein deficient and real foods will have protein and fat. And that's what I try to focus on. Yes. And, and you already answered my, my members question. So I will tell her that answer about, um, the relationship between sleep apnea, um, and insulin yeah. resistance. But for the fact of time, I just wanted to wrap it up and ask you the final question of what are you most proud of? I like popping this question on my guests. So if you had to pick something in your life, um, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I'm most proud of my family. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm unabashedly, uh, at the end of my life, 
any success I have as, as a professor and a scientist will mean nothing if I've failed my wife and children. So I'm most proud of my family and the home that we're trying to build, my wife and I, that's what I'm most proud of. And may I, as any, if anyone knows me as a professor and scientist, I don't, I don't want my kids to ever even care about that. I just want them to know my dad loves me and my, may my wife always say the same. So I'm most proud of my relationships with them. Well, I think that's a beautiful answer to wrap it up on. I so appreciate your time, your talents. I didn't even mention, I think your CV was like 15 pages and I was going to say, how do you get all this stuff done? And I know that you don't care about any of that. So I just, again, wanted to thank you. And can you let people know where they can connect with you online? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again, Morgan. This was great. I, I'm mostly active on um, Instagram, I, which is funny. I used to be more active on Twitter and just fine. I don't really like the Twitter environment anymore. Um, <laughs> so I pivoted to Instagram. So I try to put out a little video once or twice a week about human metabolism. And that's all it ever is. It's never me working out or it's never me um, eating. It's just little snippets about human metabolism. So Instagram, they can find me at Ben Bickman, PhD. Um, also, I regularly contribute blog and video content to a company that I'm involved with called Health Code. People can find more about that at Get Health, and Health is spelled H-L-T-H. And also, I'm a founder in an online uh, coaching platform called Insulin IQ, and people can look that up as well for more information. Wonderful. And I'll be sharing your Instagram stuff. I always like watching your videos because it's just you and the camera and you're just yeah. getting a little super deep tidbit well, of information. Well, Morgan, you'd be amazed and disappointed at just how casual those are. I will actually kind of remind myself, oh, I need to do something. And so I'll just turn on the camera and just sort of go. Yeah. Well, social media is just, it's always an experiment, isn't it? <laughs> but it's a tool and may it, it may, is. may we always keep it. Let it be a tool and I'm okay with that. Yep. All right, guys. Well, we will talk to you again next week with another podcast episode. Dr. Bickman, thank you so much again. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you had a big takeaway, take a screenshot of this episode and tag me on Instagram at Dr. Morgan Nolte. If you're listening live, you can also come on over to my Instagram account every Wednesday in April at 12 15 central daylight time for coaching over coffee, where you can ask a question, get answers and get some coaching. Thanks again for tuning in. And I'll talk with you same time, same place next week. Bye for now.